1993, a cartoonist for the New Yorker, his name was Bob Mankoff, some of you may read that, know his name, drew a cartoon that became his legacy and, and actually, um, after that, was the title of his memoir. It was uh, so important, so popular as a cartoon, and that it was one of the New Yorker's most popular when they when they take these kind of polls and find out. Uh, it's actually been included in the Yale Book of Quotations, and you'll find the phrase of it on T-shirts and coffee mugs and bumper stickers. And this little phrase uh, of this cartoon has become entrenched in our culture. It somehow must have hit a nerve in people's lives. And what I find amazing is that Mankoff drew this cartoon over 20 years ago, and it is still... Um, in a sense, summing up the way many people feel about life today. So I kind of thought I would show you that cartoon, and I built a little bit of your interest. Is that you don't? Oh, we don't have that cartoon. So I guess you won't see that cartoon, but I will tell you what it says. It's a guy on a phone. He's looking at his calendar, his date book, and he says, some you'll know this, no, Thursday's out. How about never? Is never good for you? Which I find as kind of humorous because have you ever found yourself looking at your calendar, you're trying to make time to meet maybe with another person or another couple as couples or whatever it might be, and and you realize the first open date you have is like a month or two off. Anybody ever, you, you found yourself doing that? And, and Mankoff says, I did a little study on this, he actually says part of the reason he wrote it was because not only are we living busy lives, but there are some people you want to go, um, how about... Never, right? So how busy are you? Have you ever wondered why? And what does this have to say about these temptations of Jesus that we're talking about this idea of thrive, not just survive, but how do we actually thrive in our lives in the midst of all the traffic, sometimes in the midst of wilderness? It begins as we started this series with the baptism of Jesus. And I want to share with you, it's so important, that first message, that kind of lays a foundation for all these other messages. Because in that message, you'll see that Jesus is, there's this kind of like what I call baptismal marking of his identity that is so important. It's in that moment that heaven opens and a dove descends And a voice from heaven says, you, my son, I'm just so proud of you. I'm crazy about you. I delight in you. I love you. And he feels that that sense of God's delight and his love. And it's out of that sense of his love that he lives his life. And so you see, right after that moment that he has in the baptism and in all the stories, Immediately, Jesus is, according to the Gospel of Mark, and the, the word itself means driven into the wilderness. That was the next move of God for Jesus. And it's in the wilderness, and one of the things that struck me that I wanted to do this series on this is because it was in the wilderness that the character was built in the life of Jesus, who had lived all these years, and now before he goes into ministry, his character is in a sense proven through these tests And he actually applies some practices that build his spirit, that strengthen his his heart so that he can live in the love of God and not fall in the midst of the temptation. And so as he goes into the wilderness, the very first thing we, we saw is that in this first test, this very first temptation, it's a temptation 
to take food. He's fasting. And he kind of says, food is good. But to Satan, he says, sustenance in God is far better. And then he goes to this next part of a practice, and you see him in silence. And, and Peter um, spoke about that last week. And i got to just kind of just say real quickly that, you know, some of the stuff Peter said about us, yeah. he did, he, some of you were here, he, he did pull a, a joke on me, and he said I haven't forgiven him yet, and he's correct on that. So, um, But he pulls away, Jesus does, from all the noise, gets out of the traffic of all the voices that are shouting to him, and it's in this exile, as he is away, that he, he, he in silence hears the voice of of his father from his homeland. And that's part of one of these practices do. It helps us when we're in the midst of our wilderness, in the midst of traffic. If we get silent, we hear our father who's at home. And in that home settles our heart and, and, and causes us to, to live in a way that we understand that he loves us. And which moves us into this temptation, which is about striving. Which is about needing to do and to be busy in order to get what we think we need. So listen to these words, if you would, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If, or it could be very much, since you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you that they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I just want to make a few comments about the text itself. First, you need to note that this temple and the area surrounding the temple at that time was a temple that was rebuilt by Herod the Great. Solomon's temple was destroyed when Babylon came in. And so now Herod, out of a favor, wanting to to do good so that he would kind of get the popular vote on his side, even though he ruled by the authority of Rome, he also knew it was really important where you rule that you get people for you. So he built this temple. And it began in 20 BC. And it was actually, the outer courts were not finished till 64 BC. That's an 80-year project. Now, that's not uncommon back then. Thank God that didn't happen here, right? We're our own addition. Or some of you would become impatient, you know, on that job, and it's taken a few days, and you're going, ah, well, some 80 years. But here's what's interesting. It com- it's completed in 64 AD, and Rome comes in in 70 AD. Just, just think about it. Six years later, and, and destroys and demolishes it. Well, this temple is the temple that Satan is tempting Jesus to jump from. And it could have been either the southeast corner of the temple, which was a drop of about a hundred or so um, yards, or a hundred so feet into the Kidron Valley, or it could have been on the very pinnacle of the temple. The temple structure towered about 15 stories high. It was an impressive building that Herod was building for the Jews. And no matter which place Jesus was to jump from, It would need the help of God for him not to injure himself or even die. 
So he quotes a scripture, Satan does, and that scripture is found in Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12 specifically, which is an incredible psalm if you are in a place where you are feeling anxious or nervous or filled with fear. I can tell you at a certain point in my life, I went and memorized that psalm, and I'm glad I have because I will refer to it from time to time. It's this incredible statement of God's love and care to protect you that you don't have to live in fear. And so isn't it interesting, that psalm, which we still today prize, was the psalm that Satan refers to. And again, I just want to share with you, when we think of the word temptation, it actually has the idea of test in it. Because in every temptation that you face, there is a test being given. And in that test is the opportunity to either prove your faith in God, and in proving your faith in God, you have the opportunity to prove, and he does himself faithful to you. So that when you go through the test, if you do so through obedience, you will actually experience his love. You'll be amazed at how he provides, and it will build that muscle of faith and trust. But as I said in the weeks before, that if you fail that test, guess what? You will probably face it again in some other form. Because God loves you so much because he, he is aware that he wants you to know and experience more of his love. The, the way that you will experience it is, is, is to walk into that in obedience so that you can see his love. And now he builds something in your character and it continues to build. So your test is all about your character. Okay? It's not some kind of, don't get in your head, that's kind of God just going, oh, good job. It is, it is so life related to you. In every temptation is a test, and in that test is an opportunity to prove your faith, to build your character, so that when you do so, you will experience more of God's love, and you will trust Him more for the next thing that comes. So if the first temptation was that you are what you have, you better take care of yourself, because you, you, you can't trust God to do so. So that he comes and he says, turn the bread, in, these stones into bread. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. So he quotes some scripture. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds or comes from the mouth of God. The idea is when, when the children of Israel for 40 years were in the wilderness, God trained them to live on manna. He didn't provide anything else, but provided manna daily. Only enough for them to live. And the people who hoarded and took too much, it spoiled because he was trying to teach us something that we, we don't have to live on all that we have. We live on all that God has. And there's a difference. And so the second temptation comes in. Here's the second one. It's not, the first one, you are what you have. The second is you are what you do. You are what you do. He's standing at the edge on the pinnacle and Satan says, jump Jesus. Grab people's attention by what you do. And he seems to be saying, since you are the son of God, prove God's faithfulness. Go ahead and make things happen. Grab people's attention. Get on with your mission. He's actually calling them to follow God's heart in mission for him. But do it through your own self and striving. So in a sense, the very first step out of this hug where he, he's, he, he feels the love of the Father, one of the first steps into ministry will be a step that will be grand and great, but not necessarily in the way that God wants him to do it. 
do something unbelievable in your own strength. And what's more, Satan says, it's right in line. You're really big into the word of God. You just quoted it here. I'm going to quote it as well. Here's the reality. It's written. He'll command his angels to come around you. So, so you know he loves you so much. So it doesn't matter if, if you step out of his will and you strive to get things in your own way and to do it in your own plans. God loves you so much and he'll come around you and he'll protect you. And, and the point is pretty simple. And Jesus returns with this, with this verse and he says, yeah, it's also written. There's another word that helps me understand this. And that is don't put the Lord your God to the test. Disobedience, deliberate disobedience, will not result necessarily in God coming through and protecting you and providing you for you. You get that? And Jesus is kind of saying, so I'm not going to force God's hand. And so this temptation, here's the temptation. It is the subtle voice that says to each of us, if you're going to do something significant, if you're going to make the most of your life, build something, if you're going to fulfill your dreams, if you're going to get what you think you want, then you need to make it happen. I find myself, when I'm listening to my head and my plans, that they're usually my head and my plans. And learning how to hear the Spirit of God, doesn't mean you don't use your head, but that you learn how to hear the Spirit of God and combine that is so critically important. And so Satan, in a very subtle way, says it's up to you. It's in your hands. Even what you're seeking to do, being God's will, you need to do it. Get busy. Don't waste a minute of your day because you'll never get that minute back. Remember, you are what you do. So jump, Jesus. If you want to be the Messiah, then you better do it. What a better way to do it than to grab people's attention by something incredible. Well, in preparation for this message, I read an article in The Atlantic. And the author cites a book which was published in 1899 called The Theory of the Leisure Class. And it's written by the economist and sociologist Thorsten Veblen. I don't know how you get those names, but anyway. Veblen writes, Conspicuous abstention from labor becomes the conventional mark of superior pecuniary achievement. And I thought, that's profound. That is so over the top that I have no idea what he just said. <laughs> Thank God the author of the article goes on and he says, in other words, and I'm going, that's helpful. Why didn't this guy just say it this way? The richer one gets, the less one works, and the more likely one is to try to show off one's ample leisure time. Okay? So the richer one gets, the less one works, and the more likely one is to try to show off one's ample leisure time, which was true back in 1899. This is what the article is, is stating. Back then, that was true. Turn of the century, prior to planes, trains, and automobiles, and I thought of that line, I thought, no, trains are already there, so planes, cars, and computers. The way you proved you were, you were somewhat wealthy is that you just had all kinds of leisure time. The article continues, for a while, Veblen's theory held, with few exceptions, but no longer the U.S., one can now make a good guess about how rich somebody is based on how, on the long hours they put in at work. The wealthiest American men, on average, through tests, have shown they work more than the poorer person does. And with this workaholic lifestyle comes a bit of prestige. 
They quote Sylvia Belleza, who is a Columbia School, a business school professor, who wrote something with a Georgetown and Harvard professor, so I just figured these are smart people. Um, they said the prominence of an unusual status symbol is arising in our culture. It's called seeming busy. Seeming busy. The gleam of being both well-off and time-poor, the authors write, is driven by the perceptions that a busy person possesses desired human capital characteristics such as competence and ambition and is scarce and in demand on the job market. That temptation was what Jesus faced 2,000 years ago and it is alive and living today. You are what you do and the more that you do and the busier you are and the more important and necessary and impressive to others you will be. John Orpik defines hurry sickness as a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more or more and more events in less and less time. And he continues, he says, Jesus was quite aware of this problem in his day. Repeatedly, Jesus withdrew from crowds and activities. He taught his followers to do likewise. When the disciples returned, their adrenaline pumping from a busy time of ministry, Jesus told them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest for a while. He's basically saying, slow life down. Be careful not to catch hurry sickness. It's like the flu. It is highly contagious in our culture today. There's another gospel um, Uh, account where Mark writes these words, many were coming and going that Jesus and the disciples had no rest even to eat. And that could be the model for a lot of us today, right? You may even imagine this to be a good thing that perhaps God will reward you one day at that end of time and he'll say, what a life you had. You were even too busy to eat. Well done, good, faithful, and busy servant. If you don't know much about it, busy isn't really in there. Because we're infected within our culture of hurry and busy and we fall for the temptation that Jesus faced. What we are is what we do. And if we seem busy, we look busy. In fact, we are busy. We're going to be looking impressive. And then we expect in some ways for God to step in and to help in these kind of situations. And Jesus says, don't put them to the test. Because... Jesus showed throughout his life that doing well is always the result of well-being. And the only way you are well is by slowing down and allowing this God who loves you to love you. And who says, you don't have to strive to make happen what I want to have happen for you. Now, he's not saying be passive. I'm not saying that. Jesus is very active in his obedience to God, but he knew that for people to recognize that he would be the Messiah, it would come in God's way and not through his striving. He lived out of his identity. So I want you to think about this for a second. Because I just want to take the the minutes we have remaining and give you some practices that I think will help. Because the practice that creates 
thriving out of this temptation is a simple word called slowing. It really is about slowing down and saying, God, I really trust that you love me and that I can practice a whole lot of things in my life that help me live slower. Now, I will confess, um, Peter said that I gave him the message on silence because that was something difficult for him to do. One time John Vodder spoke here and I gave him a message, some of you remember John years ago, who I gave him the message on the fruits of the Spirit called gentle. I said, try this one, John. Um, This is the one the Holy Spirit gave me and said, you are the biggest offender of this. So I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you in any way that I have this down. Because all you have to do is listen to me speak at times and you want to say what? Slow down. <laughs> so I'm going to share with you three things. Don't rush. Do less. Go deeper. Don't rush. One of the symptoms of this age is the need for speed. It's this haunting fear that there are just not enough hours in the day that, to do what needs to be done. You ever felt that? We read faster, talk faster, and when listening, do you ever do this where you, you actually nod to encourage the person to speak faster? <laughs> Another symptom is you hate to wait. Raise your hand if you hate to wait. Okay. You come to a stoplight and you jockey to see which is the shortest line or you go to the supermarket and you're always counting up how many people and things they got in their basket, right? And you try and pick that other because you got to get going. <laughs> or you may, yeah. Slowing means practicing, not rushing. And, and Jesus faced this, uh, this temptation from Satan and Jesus said, that's not the way I'm going to live. I had a uh, professor, Dallas Willard, who used to teach, and he was, he was one of these guys who did, he lived slow, and he would talk about how unrushed Jesus was and how he was present with people. And his advice to us as students, seminary students, was this, don't live rushed, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So here's some practices you can do from Monday, you know, maybe after this to Wednesday, and then maybe join us for a dinner. A couple of things. One is be fully present with the person you're talking to. Look them in the eyes. Don't think about what you want to say. Commit to not finish their sentence. Anybody do that? Or interrupt? But listen with curiosity and, and seek to truly understand. That's just one. And so I'm going to ask you to pick just one because you'll never do it. You'll OD trying to do them all. My next point is do less. So just do less. Purposely choose the slower, longer line. That might give you a heart attack, but it might be something to practice for just three days. Another one is take time to breathe. I have a little app that comes up on my phone and it just beeps and people going, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I think I do one a day. I'm just too busy. For one minute to stop and, and to do kind of hug yourself, breathe in and, and let it go. Another is do less. So here I'll give you do less symptoms and then we'll talk about a couple of practices. Another symptom of this temptation is what I call multitasking. So do less. The temptation to do more than one thing at a time or to try to do multiple things at the same time so that you can be more efficient is one of the practices that we're notorious as Americans for doing. 
And it becomes dangerous when you try and put your makeup on the car, hold a coffee cup, change the radio station, and drive with your knee. And it can become fatal when you get in the habit of texting. Because you got to get it done. And to break those habits are really hard. So practice slowing by doing less. From Monday through Wednesday this week, I'm going to encourage some eat lunch. Actually eat lunch and don't do work. Eat lunch and just take, even if you can eat lunch in, let's say, 20 minutes, just take time to think or meditate or to let God speak to you. Actually eat food slower. Chew it. I I mean that because I, I have a dog, this little golden retriever, and I'll throw that dog a nice piece of meat that we just didn't eat. It has fat on all the rest. And it will go. And I just, I'm going to go, dog, chew it. It's really good. Do less. Go deeper. Richard Foster writes, superficiality is the curse of our age. The temptation that you are what you do and the hurry and busyness that goes along with it causes us to live, I wrote, as I was thinking about it, really thin lives. Often there's little substance because hurry reduces everything to a soundbite, to 140 characters and a tweet, to bullet points format, to making sure that the pastor preaches the doctrine of, of the incarnation in less than 20 minutes, which I never do anyway. So anyway... We say, teach me to follow you, Jesus, but make sure I can do it in five easy points. But character takes time. Depth comes slowly. God's glory doesn't seem to abide with superficiality. This morning when I was going through this, I I felt at this point the Lord just saying, for a moment just talk about marriage to some of you who are younger couples. A strong, deep marriage doesn't happen in a year or two or five. Anybody say amen to that? To think five to seven years into it, oh, we lost what we had, it was fizz. I hate to say it. Because love is choosing to to show up with what's inside you honestly with the other person it's not ignoring those things, but showing up honestly and saying, I, this is important to me, I need to understand this, and, and, and saying, I'm going to love you in the midst of it, and we are going to be committed to it. I'm going to change. Change me first, God. Change me first, God. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to ask for you to protect me. And it, marriage just doesn't happen overnight. Death requires time. And often comes slowly. So here's the practice of sowing that leads to Depth. I really believe this is critically important. Take some time every day, even if it's just 10 minutes, for five minutes, read the word of God, and for five minutes, reflect on it. I tell guys in my group that all the time. It is probably the single greatest practice I have done in my life. Go deep in relationship. Another one that I'll encourage you to think about is actually commit to a small group where you just don't get around and talk about God's word, but you talk about God's word as it relates to your actual life, the very things that you are facing. And get honest with people, that people who can be confidential. 
I, I've got more. I'm just going to stop there. Solitude is this idea, is, is the one place where we gain freedom from the force of society. So this whole idea of slowing down and getting away is one of the ways that you do go deeper. I'm going to let you think about that because I'm, I'm going to just stop there. I, I, I think we have enough. I'm, I'm going to ask the team to come. And I'm, I just want you to take this time as they sing this song, Sanctuary, to just be slow. <laughs> Do your best just to kind of be present with God and, and, and kind of um, empty your head of all the things that you want to do or think you need to do. But do your best just to be present and let him speak to your heart.